you wouldn't think mm -hmm. that we could be spoiling history because history has already been written. Yeah, it's already happened. It's back there. But movies and shit and us giving away secrets, that's probably what we're going to do in here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to spoil history and movies and the history of movies. <laughs> it's all wrapped in my head and I can't get it out. Oh, Jesus. We've left this history out on the counter way too long. It's spoiled. Oh, God. Yeah. Hey, Tim, smell this. This is history. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Pungent. This is Sendrum Drum Drum Drum. Stand by. You know what, Derek? What, Tim? Four score and seven years ago. Is that like a fortnight? <laughs> Which is two weeks. Many a moon. Seven years ago. Seven years is somehow related to two weeks. Carry the one. <laughs> you already <laughs> lost me. <laughs> anyway, welcome to... Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Yes. Mm, beautiful. Welcome back, you fine folks. Yeah, we're going to talk about history in movies because we think it's fucking fascinating. Oh, it is. It yeah. is. Well, some histories, not all histories. Yeah, right. And some might actually prefer the made-up stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because what, that's what we're going to do is we're going to kind of compare, you know, the historical movies and how they kind of influence um, uh, culture in a way to, like, even when the stories are not accurate, they tend to kind of enter the zeitgeist of being... The, what happened in history when actually history might be similar or completely different. Right, exactly. So there's those essences of uh, people going to the movies and saying, well, I don't need to read a book. This will do <laughs> yeah. it for me. Right, which is pretty much the story of my life. Because uh, <laughs> 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 I hate reading. But uh, we're also going to kind of talk about some of the guys who really get into being as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. So just a mishmash. There's a whole gamut of shit to talk about on this. Yeah, it's just a history of history of the history of history. Yay, History of the World Part 1. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Gotta get back in time. So, not too long ago at work, a buddy of mine said he was listening to a podcast. Okay. And he was talking about how humans process time. This podcast, I guess, was talking about how humans process time. Yeah. And they were using different scenarios about when you think something actually happened in even more recent history that you've lived through as compared to how you think of it. And one of the questions that mm -hmm. the, the people on this podcast posed was everyone right now is so into can't do without smartphones and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. Apple came out with that smartphone. If you ask someone, when did the smartphone originally come out by Apple? 80%, 90% of people will say the wrong year because it seems like we've had them far longer than we have. Right, yeah. And he even said that to me. And I, so I was guessing, uh, it's probably like 03, 04, somewhere around there. And mm -hmm. it's 07. Yeah. 
and that shocked me because I was like, oh wow, yeah, I guess it, yeah, that makes it. But it's one of those things that still like even when you think back to when when did Google, how long have we had Google and the internet and all of this mm-hmm. stuff, it seems like forever now because it's weird how history works in that. So the way that humans process time and history mm-hmm. is a weird jumbled mess in everyone's individual right. head. It's fluid, yeah. Right. It's fluid, even though you can get five historians in one room and get slightly different versions of each interpretation of how the text reads. Right. So even these days, like processing certain things, like if you're talking about something that happened in the 1800s or, Mm -hmm. you know, or 700 AD or 700 BC, all of these Mm -hmm. things, we're going from writings or stories of writings or stories Mm -hmm. of stories of story and they're all built upon these things so how accurate can anything be even if you go back to something like before everything was documented uh on film or the news and everything how accurate can any of that be because i believe even in my own thing i don't think that people even set out to do it sometimes not all the time but sometimes you have those those things where your own memories can't help but get flourished mm-hmm. with little bits of oh that didn't really happen but oh did that happen yeah wait wait a minute you know and so you start thinking you start telling the story that happened to you maybe a year ago maybe 10 years ago or something like that mm-hmm. and then when you really mm-hmm. have someone that was there saying sharing their part of it you're like oh wait did that not happen and so it's weird <laughs> right. how history has that thing so when you get involved in trying to tell a story about history yeah you know, well one thing that pops to my mind is how like it taking a movie which I love like Unforgiven yeah and they have that writer following Richard Harris's character mm-hmm. and writing about the duck of death the duke duck I says right right and he comes up to Gene Hackman's character yeah and Hackman starts telling his side of what's going on right and how completely different it was right yeah. and so you see it doesn't matter who's telling the truth in that story that that writer is more interested in who has the best story and then that's when that saying that comes in usually that a lot of people who are making anything be it tv or film on history what do you do do you do the truth or do you do the legend because the legend is way more interesting right right and and here's the other thing too that we have to put into context america is an english colony right right and england is the motherland of our language. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately for a lot of other cultures, our history is very Anglified. Mm -hmm. It's it's from the perspective of the white man from England. You know what I mean? And and, uh, a lot of culture is kind of lost in some of that. And it's a skewed perspective. It's homogenized, I guess I should say. And so a lot of written history kind of really starts... I'm going to say in the early medieval period, maybe around the time of like Columbus and mm-hmm. the Inquisition, and it was all the same time. That's that's in the late 1400s, right? right. And then, so when, when things start happening before that, also English language is getting further away from what we know it as today, too. Right. And it's Middle English right there. To the point of um, what they call the, uh, the Norman Conquest of England, which is William the Conqueror in 1066, uh, at the Battle of Hastings, basically becomes the new king of England. That kind of starts the medieval period, or or the middle medieval period. And, and the time before that is somewhat documented, and then it goes into the Dark Ages, what they call the Dark Ages, right. because there isn't a lot of written history in that. And that's where what you were saying, a lot of what we know of the time is very um, 
mythic and lorish, like Beowulf is, right. a, is a prime example of that. It's a poem written about a, uh, a late Dark Ages, early Middle Ages time right. uh, in Old English that we can't understand today, right. right? So, I mean, that's something to take into perspective, at least from the textbook world of, you know, because there's obviously there's, there's Asian history right. and uh, Chinese history goes way the fuck far back and all that stuff right. but I, I'm not necessarily a student of that stuff so I can't really speak to it right. as well I know a little bit about Chinese history and the emperors and stuff but right. so I guess what I'm just trying to say is is like there's that weird time because before the dark ages which again it's it's an anglified version of what mm-hmm. of time that's when the Romans basically uh, left England. Mm. So there was a written history from that time period that was very, there was a lot of science, there was a lot of education mm-hmm. and a lot of debauchery too, right. but they were a very organized society, the Romans. And then I guess as they withdrew, as they shrank and withdrew from parts of England and, and, and Northern Europe and all that stuff, a lot of that knowledge was lost. And then we went into this lull period of not necessarily recording the history and it becoming more fable and folklore and all that stuff until the early medieval period and then we start getting documentations and stuff like that and and then as we go along obviously as we get closer and closer to our time right the documentation starts going through the roof right. and there's there's literature on everything all over the world at all the time you know what right. i mean and that that like even what you're saying there that when those those dark periods start happening where fable starts coming in and everything it's kind of very similar to what we're experiencing even these days where mm-hmm. it's people being influenced by fable back then and thinking you know mm-hmm. you know the wolf's out there and, and all of these yeah. things and, and that starts being uh, re- you know it represents itself into the natural culture of the time and then as other people come in and start bleeding in their beliefs and their things mm-hmm. everything starts getting all tied up and everything so going back to that scenario of the writer not really caring if the story is true or not just how interesting yeah. it can be because people want that stuff you know what I mean? Right. And being that it was embraced by cultures at the time, it makes it even more fascinating. So as time gets further away from the beliefs of that, it still is interesting to look back through the perspective of what people believed back in those times and then pretend, oh, I'm back in this time and witches are over there and, and warlocks <laughs> are over yeah. here and all of this stuff. That's what where, where history starts getting really, really blurred. Yeah. So I guess what I'm basically saying there is that anytime entertainment of any sort, whether it be writings or art or film or TV, anytime those two intermingle, I don't think there's an interesting enough way to get a mass group to be interested in your story without adding flourishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I believe that goes beyond homo sapien. I mean, like you you have your pack of homo erectus or your Neanderthal sitting around the fire. They have language. They're probably telling stories to each other yeah. this way. And then, you know, my the fish I caught today was this fucking big, you know, with <laughs> right. the hands, you know what I mean, <laughs> uh, in whatever language they're speaking. So um, I guess my point is, is like the filmmakers of today, uh, you know, the word gets overused a lot today, but they're the storytellers of our time mm-hmm. versus, say, 10,000 years ago, the dude who was the most boisterous around the campfire. You know what right. I mean? That would be your Steven Spielberg. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a great start. I can't see, I can't wait to hear the rest of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
Yeah, I'll have more to say than. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Did he really? <laughs> I feel like in the, say, like the 50s, 60s and stuff, there was always kind of an embellishment oh, on yeah. historical stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The accuracy was like, whatever, who cares? Well, you got the Duke in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly who, who came to mind when I was thinking that. You know, like some of his war movies were very, right. the World War II movies were very over-exaggerated. Right. And well, and also, let's not forget that they actually got, for some freaking reason, John Wayne to play Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You do well, Kumlik. For while I have fingers to grasp a sword and eyes to see, your treacherous head is not safe on your shoulders, nor your daughter in her bed. I, I would say modern filmmaking kind of starts in the late 60s. Right? Oh, yeah. No, I would totally agree. We, we talked about in our anti-heroes show, yeah. the edge comes in to play. And with the edge, you kind of... Some people want to tell a more realistic story and all that stuff. And um, right. and then it becomes kind of like a choice of the director and the writer, whether how accurate they want to be versus inaccurate, right? Right. So what we'll start with is, because this is a pretty broad topic, and we're probably just going to have to play it loose, bro. Right, right. <laughs> and I think we'll start, you know, talking about accurate versus inaccurate and all that stuff. We'll, we'll start with um, fictional stories. Hmm. That are period that that are historic that take place in a period older than our own, right. but attention to detail is extremely important to the filmmaker. Right, right, right. And uh, the one that earliest one that comes to mind is uh, Barry Lyndon by S Stanley Kubrick. Right, right. And you really got to like looking into this movie. And seeing how attention to detail he is on this kind of stuff comes from an obsessive project that he didn't get to make, which was Napoleon. He wanted to do a Napoleon, and he read, he had all of this stuff. He was ready to go with the movie. And then uh, Waterloo was a movie that another studio made that came out and tanked. Right. And the minute that happened, Warner Brothers started to pull funding because they're like, well, someone already put out a movie that had that was about Napoleon and it bombed. Right. We don't want to put a lot of resource into this because obviously people don't give a shit. And so all of that intrigue and attention to detail that Stanley Kubrick poured himself into to, to tell this story of Napoleon ended up mm -hmm. being transferred over right. into, okay, well, I already know so much about this kind of time period. Right. How can I move that into something else? And then he ends up finding that, uh, I think it was a short story that ended up becoming a book, which was The Luck of Barry Lyndon. And that was by right. some guy named William Makepeace Thackeray. <laughs> All right. So, but yeah, and, and even then, so what you're seeing is, Attention to detail on historical things, mm -hmm. and even Kubrick going to the point of not wanting it elaborately lit like a Hollywood movie. So he designs, he gets with a bunch of people, designs cameras that can use the film of the time to actually film with candlelight. Which is the first well, yeah. time that had ever been able ever to be been done. done. And it right, took him right. to invent that kind of thing so it could be made because he wanted it accurate. That's how they lit things back then when it was dark and stuff. So he right. wanted that look. And so you see him taking this hyper-realism thing that he has attention to detail about the time, but taking this fictional story mm -hmm. and and putting that character that is fiction. And, and like with most Kubrick characters, very hyper-stylized Mm -hmm. 
and putting it in real historic events. And so that's where right. these lines start getting all blurry. This is what I'm talking about because it is yeah. set in real things, real time periods, real accuracy yeah. of what's going on, dress and all of that stuff. But then right. you right. add a heightened sensibility to it of storytelling. And that's where it's like, it's, it's inventive for the time. Yeah, it's, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's an interesting story about a basically a con man back in, say, I think the late Georgian period who kind of is a nobody who cons his way up into the aristocracy. And right. it's, some people call it boring, whatever. It's a long one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, it is kind of paced of its time, which a lot of movies weren't very fast paced back then. Right. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's interesting. Right. And even for the slow-paced movies that were out back then, it was still slower than most of yeah, those were. Right, so, right, of course, right. like in regular Kubrick style, came out, everyone hated it. Years later, right. people rewatched it and was like, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of his movies outside of 2001 and yeah. Full Metal Jacket, they, they those were some of the quickly received ones. But Right. And Spartacus, you know. But, right. And that's the other thing, too. Spartacus, I don't know how... Uh, that's all fable and very right. Hollywood, you know. And he directed Spartacus under studio control, I right. believe. That was to get him in so I could right. do... I'll show him what I can do with their material and then I'll push my material in. Exactly. But I mean, you can look at those two things as kind of a, when the studio's involved versus right. when the artist is involved. Right. You compare Sp Spartacus to Barry Lyndon and, and uh, it's very two very different oh, films. Yeah. I would venture to say that, uh, you know, a normal person would watch both of those movies and not realize that they came from the same filmmaker, right? Right, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I only have watched this because of my wife but uh Downton Abbey is another one where it is very impeccably detailed right. and 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 shot of a time that that's it's very accurate and right. the way they speak the way they right. dress the clothes they wear the cars they're driving all that stuff that's that's another one um that I would say kind of fits into this category oh yeah uh because it's not a real family you're following in that film no but there are characters based on people and that right. and that estate that they're using as the main uh, yeah, that's a real... It's a real. It's like High Clear Castle or right. something like that. But it's very fictionalized in what, what they're doing. But that, that castle did actually host a lot of what they're talking about. Kings and queens came to stay there, mm -hmm. boards and all of that stuff. So Yeah. Edgar's released The Northman, oh, yeah. and I saw it today. Uh, but he's also known for The Lighthouse and The Witch, right? So The Northman is actually an old... Nordic poem tale or saga mm. so in a way it kind of comes from history and the best way it could from that time period it's not right. written history it's like we were saying it's from oral history that later became written history which is a lot of Scandinavian Viking history is that way right and a lot of a lot of hands in that pot you might say of where the stories are being patched together from gets exaggerated yeah right and then plus it's told from the perspective of a very spiritual outlook on life right you know what I mean they have their Nordic beliefs and 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 so the story's told as if all that stuff is real right and the same goes for the like the witch is that way as mm -hmm. well where it's 1600s America and that dude just has He's like uh, almost obsessive compulsive with his uh, his detail. It's Robert Edgar's is, I mean. Right. Folklore 
fairy tales, mythology, religion, sometimes the occult, that's what turns me on the most, even more than cinema. And I really, 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 really love cinema. Uh, but And that's always what I'm l- looking at and reading. It's also a, almost a, a evolution of what we were just talking about with uh, Stanley Kubrick because right. he's taking hyper-stylized characterizations of certain things, lures of the time, you might say, mm-hmm. and then putting them in realistic settings of accurate, detailed histor- historical stuff. So real, right. how how cabins were really built back in the time when the witch was filmed, and right. and how the lighthouse looks, and all of the stuff that they're using, and the accuracy of how they, you know, yeah. bring the oil up and do all of that. All of that stuff is hyper realistic, and then uh, and then he's taking this stylized mm-hmm. vision that he has for the story, mm-hmm. and and laying that on top of it. Right, and and I think the one of the biggest characters in all three of those films is the dialect. Mm-hmm. My family's blood. My own blood is inside you. You are the well our dynasty will spring from. I did not wish you to know until I could trust that that child would be safe. And its accuracy to the time period, because yeah. it's pretty bananas. You know, like the research he puts into it, and complete deep dive into the culture of that time, of the era, and all that stuff. Right. I, I, like I said, I saw the Northman today. It was so Robert Edgar's esque right. that it's. I'm still soaking it in. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I mean? So I, I'm not going to comment on it or anything, tell you whether I liked right. it or hated it or anything. His movies are among everything. You don't go in and it's not one of those movies they say, eh, just turn your brain off and go in and have fun. Yeah. No, no. That's not what he does. <laughs> no. He's on the very no. opposite end of that spectrum where you have to think about it and then you can't help but think about it and then it percolates in your mind. And yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, in a very interesting, like, uh, challenging way, mm-hmm. you know, but not not negatively. No. It's just interesting. Yeah. No, like you were saying, like, it, you just saw it, and it would probably take you a, another, you know, five days to a week to really put your finger on, did I like it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, we'll get into it later. I'm a big fan of the show Vikings from the History Channel. And that's kind of everybody's entry point into that world. And, and, and that's a very um, slightly homogenized version of it. It's still cool and brutal and all that stuff versus the world that Robert Eggers create is a lot more harsh. Right. You get a really good look into what it would be like to live then. And you would say, I don't want to be there. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Somebody get me a coat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And a Sherman tank to live in because all these people are crazy scary. <laughs> and I mean, if you weren't introduced to it through that show, you were introduced to it like I was, the Viking culture, I mean, and that's through the Muppet Show with the pigs on the thing singing in the Navy. In the Navy, yes, you can sail the seven seas. In the Navy, yes, you can put two wine at But he's an example of a guy who, who, man, he takes that Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher attention to detail and just ramps it way the fuck up. Yep. Like you were saying earlier how, you know, the people of of long years ago, many, many a moon ago, sit around the the fire and tell these stories. His storytelling is not set in, uh, let me show you pretty effects to help along my... My, mm-hmm. my movie it's like it's a yarn that he's telling you and and it's yeah. full of fable and weird stuff and and realistic stuff and, and and i think that's what 
keeps them in your mind so long because your brain's trying to decipher like yeah what was that what was that i know that yeah. was kind of real but what where where does that fit you know that's what's interesting about his his storytelling i will say this compared to the out of the three movies because this is a, a known like i said a saga mm. it's a sort of a familiar tale mm. versus the lighthouse which is completely right like I've never seen that story before. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the witch is pretty unique as well. Oh yeah. So that's the one element that I'd say is probably the downfall to it. Mm. You know, if there is, well, you know, if we're going to say there is one, it's just that it's it's not mind-blowingly different from right. anything. It's a, a one thousand-year-old story. Right. It's hard to come at a topic that's been covered a gazillion times and and get put right. a brand new spin on it. But right. you can you right. can put a brand new unique tone. He definitely puts a tone on it, right. and a, like the attention to detail has it tell it in a way that makes you feel like, okay, all the iterations later, right. they don't mean shit to that one. Right, you know? <laughs> right. It's almost like he's saying, not necessarily how I want to tell it, it's like how it would be told then. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll say, I'll say this in The Northman, he's obviously telling it from the perspective of a, a ninth century Viking who has full beliefs of Nordic gods and the Nordic traditions. So the way that he is experiencing the world is got all of the dogmatic baggage mm. of the Nor Nordic religion to it. Right. You know, what we see, because we have the filter of history, what we see in the movie uh, happening, this guy's weird visions he's having or whatever as like, oh, he's just, what is he going into? fantasy land right i don't think that's for him it's like almost a spiritual transcendence of his reality right you know what i mean and that's how it should be portrayed it's right. not necessarily that he's off his rocker or you know what i mean or right. just being like eggers is being fruity cakey for the sake of uh foo-fooing the movie right right <laughs> you know i really think these people believe the world existed in that way and that is how they saw the world yeah yeah i mean i think that there's many many cultures that have their own versions of what we're talking about well in the way that like modern um, we're not necessarily religious people you and i but right. people of our generation who are anglo you know america white americans or whatever that uh believe in christianity right when they talk about you know seeing angels over their bed or whatever they're right or the light at the end of the tunnel is to heaven right you know exactly. whereas like the light at the end of the tunnel for a viking is the doors to valhalla right. you know what i mean exactly. it's this they're, we're, they're both seeing the same thing right. it's just through a, the lens of their culture right right this is a slight variation on what we just talked about but um we're going to talk about a little bit about like uh say true stories mm -hmm. where the historical leads are replaced by fictional characters, right? And uh, and you're and you're probably thinking, what? <laughs> but I, uh, the the television show Mindhunter is a perfect example of this, right? Because a director that's extremely detail oriented, right? Yeah, yeah. beyond detail oriented, right? And yeah. that and that's of course David Fincher, our mandatory mention every episode, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, he is mine and your favorite. That's David Fincher. Funny thing. In the ICU, there's no system to alert the guards. It's short-sighted, seeing what kind of people come through. I could kill you now pretty easily. Do some interesting things before anyone showed up. Then you'd be with me in spirit. But uh, in, in Mindhunter, right? I mean, it is 
the true story of how the um, FBI behavioral research department or what you know became a thing in right. the 70s and the thing that they do to develop this skill actually happened right just to put a, a name to the real guy it's from yeah. the special agent John Douglas who was the author of the namesake of the show Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit so yeah and that was a book that came out in 1995 I've listened to it it's yeah. very, it's interesting oh yeah it's good no it's great and and so Holden Ford is basically the the fictional character right. portraying the aspects of uh John, John Douglas right. I don't I don't think John Douglas is quite as um eccentric as Holden is right. in the show right yeah he's a little he's a pretty much a straight shooting right uh, FBI guy yeah and for, I mean, everything that I've read about how the show interprets its its main leads, John mm-hmm. Douglas's character, which in the show is Holden, is probably mm-hmm. the most, even though he's not just like John Douglas, he's probably the most accurately portrayed right. to the yeah. rest of the characters of the three in the, in the, in right. the show. Because the other one is is Bill Tench, his partner, right. who's played by Holt McCallany, yep. who's who's our guy. We <laughs> love that guy, and um, he is Special Agent Robert Ressler, who's very famous. He's the one that came up with the whole like Robert Ressler is the guy who came up with the whole idea of going and interviewing the serial murderers. Right, and in some things that I've even read, he even came up with the term right serial killer. Yeah, that's yeah, yes, I think he's he's the one credited with that term. Yeah, yeah. The Dr. Wendy Carr, who is, uh, that's, that one too, they took a lot of liberties with. Because yeah. I've heard an re- interview with her recently on uh, The Murder Squad with Jensen and Holes. And uh, she kind of was talking about how she wasn't thrilled about how, I don't understand why the sexuality part of it right. came into a play. And, and that's not really who I am. But right. Yeah, because she's still very active. She teaches, I think, at, like, at, at Boston or something, Boston right. University or something. So Dr. Wendy Carr is is based on Ann Burgess, who was kind of like the academic right. branch of, of the behavioral studies uh, FBI thing. Right. And, and That these guys started. And also, you know, like John Douglas and Ann Burgess. Those two are still alive, whereas uh, the Robert Ressler, he, he passed, passed away. Passed away, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. But yeah, so, so the show with those three leads, of course, they... They're, they're going very fictionalized with that. And I think, like I said at the beginning of this, with any any true story, you have to add a bit of soap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Scrub it up a bit with Hollywood sheen a bit to give layers to the character that, you know, most of us wake up in the morning, eat cereal, go to work, come home, and do our thing. And and so that every day on a show would be very boring. So to add, you know, spice it up with a little sex or spice it up with a little bit mm-hmm. of, you know... Uh, right, the college girl and, yeah, and, and even Bill Tench's... Yeah, all his home life stuff. Autistic is. son and, yeah, all that. And, and again, like I said, with the, her, the doctor being, having her complicated... Uh, right trying to keep her her homosexuality a secret right. in a time period where she kind of had to right yeah, which was you know all that stuff is just kind of the the soup to make it a little interesting and not all about right serial killers right so because they're obviously right. you know they're following not only are they interviewing real people you know people pr- portraying these real killers right. they're also s- trying to help solve some real cases like right the uh, uh, Atlanta child murderer right. and um you know btk is is prominent throughout the whole right 
series, you know. Right, you got Charles Manson in there, and Ed, yeah, Edmund right. Kemper, and yeah, all those are these. the guys that are caught already. Right, but yeah, right. And and so you have to add these elements of these fictionalized characters so you can embellish on their their soapy kind of home life to spice it up so you're not concentrating so much in sensationalizing a show just about these real serial killers. But it is it's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. And in the show, the, the, the level of detail that David Fincher puts yeah. into it, I'm always looking for to make sure the cars are right, you <laughs> right know, yeah. being the car guy. <laughs> right. and, and Fincher's done a thing for me a few times where he's blown me away with some of his car <laughs> stuff. And in that series, you know, it seems like he definitely um, might have some kind of contract with Ford. <laughs> right. Because the majority of the cars in... in uh, Mindhunter are Fords. Right. These are like boring cars of the 70s that nobody collects. Right. But they're all in like pristine condition as if they were brand new. You right. know what I mean? And even Holden's last name is what? All right. This is a deep dive for a car guy. <laughs> His first name is is the Australian GM division, which is Holden. <laughs> and they, they just went under. So uh, about two years ago, Holden is was Australia's longest car manufacturer, but they were purchased by General Motors back in like the 30s or whatever. Okay. Uh, so the whole joke is that in, in Australia, especially Holden and Ford is, is basically like Chevy and Ford here in America. Oh, so wow. his, the fact that his name is Holden Ford. That's funny. Yeah. In the same vein of what we were just talking about with Minehunters, mm -hmm. you also go over to something like Saving Private Ryan. Right. Stand out of your weapon. Keep those actions clear. We'll see you on the beach. One of the king directors of all time telling a story. Yeah, and, right. Uh, he's and probably one of my... It's got to be up there with one of my favorite stories of his. Oh, it's, yeah. No, it's definitely... Yeah, well, probably one of my favorite movies of his. Top five, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to narrow his movies yeah. down, but... That one does something. You know, when it came out, the, 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 like you said, it's extremely period accurate. Yeah. And, yeah. and it was, I think it was the first time we saw a war movie where it was like, oh, yep. and how scary Normandy would have been. Right. The story is taken somewhat from a true story, right. but it's, it's greatly exaggerated, and uh, all of the characters in that movie are fictional. Right. The real guy, uh, Sergeant Frederick Fritz Nyland, mm -hmm. that was the guy, he lost two brothers. He had his two, all three of them had gone off to war, and his two brothers, well, they, at the time, they believed both brothers were killed. Right. And so the ar the army really didn't give him an option and said, you know, go home to your mother. Right. You're the last survivor of your family. And uh, it wasn't this all-out search for the guy. He was basically like his commander just turned around and said, yeah, you got to go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you got to go, Fritz. Right. You know what I mean? Because, right. you know, uh, and then I guess you were saying that uh, one of his the one of his brothers was found later a, a who yeah. survived, but he was, a, he was a POW. Right. right. Yeah, but, but I mean, it, it still is a, a, like just amazing story to even pluck. Yeah. Even if you're embellishing a bit on it, what, what I find amazing about what Spielberg did here was he's just like, we're not going to Hollywood this war movie we're gonna make it so realistic in fact so realistic that when what ended up happening is when, when world war ii veterans saw the movie it was shell shock kind of yeah <laughs> you know? right it was shell shock for me yeah. and i've never been in war no, for sure for me too and <laughs> and the thing that's so great about it is, is he doesn't 
let you off the hook. He doesn't bring in any music to like, right. Hey, this is a movie, you know, right. he waits till that whole opening 20 minute, 25 minute scene is done. And then right. the music comes in after they're looking out of all the devastation, you know, because right. it's, it's, it's that swelling moment of like, look at what we had to do kind of thing. And uh, yeah. it's this gut punch. You know? Yeah, it really is. And um, I, another interesting thing i remember hearing steven spielberg talk about in that movie is um the one little kind of wormy character the scaredy guy yeah who could have gone and helped right save the i want to dance guy from dazed and confused (laughs) (laughs) right that character he basically said i i wanted to put somebody in the movie that i felt represented what i think i would be like in war right that's steven spielberg's kind of like addressing how he thinks he would if he would have acted right. in that time period, yeah. Yeah. You know, and people always think that. We always think that about ourselves. Yeah. Like, man, if I was in that situation, I would have ran for the hills, yeah. you know? Right. But in reality is we tend to be heroic in the, in the face of danger, and we don't think we would be. Right. When, exactly. when contemplating it, you know what yeah. I mean? Exactly. So who's to say what Stephen would have been like in right. World War II? Exactly. I think he needs to give himself more credit. One of the things that in, in researching it, just to kind of see something that, that I was kind of surprised about is, as you said, the Fritz Nyland, uh, the character that uh, what Matt Damon's character James Francis Ryan ends up being based off of, like Fritz Nyland, he was a paratrooper in the 101st, 101st Airborne Division. Right, which is what the um, we'll get to that later as a, a Band of Brothers is following right. the, the whole thing, right? right? So I think it kind of kicks off the whole Tom Hicks. Steven Spielberg relationship in a way oh, yeah. when they both kind of have an interest in this time period and uh, invest a lot of money into yep. recreating stuff. We'll talk about that later. Yep. But now sticking with war, sticking with war, yeah. sticking with World War Two. Yeah. Actually, yep. another brilliant director, oh, and that's yeah. Chris Nolan. We talked about him just recently. You know, recently in our la- last season in our Batman episode, right? Whole bunch. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and now we're going to talk about Dunkirk. Dunkirk so far, why can't they just load a Cali? The enemy had something to say about it. I don't hear a setting ducks. Even fields, they'll come out of the sun. It's another movie with that's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, man. And it's mostly, the people we're following are fictional. Yeah. But it is kind of a, a true account of, say, the vibe and how the soldiers were feeling. Right. When I was researching this, what I found was shown to be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not necessarily. It was almost really, it was represented as a misinterpretation. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the soldiers in the movie are basically like, where's the Royal Air Force? They abandoned us. They abandoned right. us. And, and what happened was they were being intercepted by, uh, uh, down the coastline a bit or whatever, uh, by the Germans and dog, and they were dog fighting for their lives. Right. So they could never make it to Dunkirk to support those guys in the air. And and the soldiers did have of this feeling like the RAF had, um, the Royal Air Force had had abandoned them. Right. You know. So really, I mean, he, I mean, he is kind of portraying that. It, you know, I think people can interpret it as. Yeah. That's what happened. The Royal Air Force, because it's only that's what the soldiers thought happened. I don't think it was something that was brought up to him and he said, no, forget that. I think it's there yeah. in the subtext of the film. I, right. I really do believe it's there. Yeah. Because I just watched it not too long ago and I remember thinking, like, it's the movie I feel is just such a great representation of how 
time can be manipulated in film to make you feel mm -hmm. something about a, a subject, which we'll go into detail on this stuff a little later on another film too, but how time can be manipulated in a film to, even though if you know the history of this stuff, it still mm -hmm. wears on your nerves to where you're like, oh my God, what is going to happen kind of thing. Even if you know the right. outcome of what happened at the end of that. Yeah, it's a, because it's history. Yeah, it's brilliant the way it's yeah. laid out and the way he takes these things. And even some of the things that were criticized about, you know, Tom Hardy's character in the film and how they, they were keeping track of, he's writing on the console, keep track of mm -hmm. how many gallons of fuel does he have and all of that stuff was taken from like accounts mm -hmm. of like when you're over certain areas, you have to kind of do this. If your gauge isn't working, which was a common problem apparently and stuff like that, all of that stuff. Yeah, in the Spitfire. To yeah. add that in is so nuanced, but still right. so such a beautiful thing to also give you an internal clock in a film that already has a, a major clock ticking away in each story that's falling on top of each other but you don't realize how out of sequence everything is till the end and how it builds until yeah right it took me i remember watching it in a theater and not i'm like oh, i don't understand this but then yeah right. basically the, the movie's broken into three timelines right. And, you know, each one is happening at a different rate of right. speed. And it converges. But they all converge <laughs> it's, it's to the same time period by the end, right. right? And each story is keeping you like, what the fuck, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's not one storyline, usually in something like that, what I, I'm fascinated about that movie, there's not one storyline for me in that yeah. mo movie to where if they cut away from like Tom Hardy's to the one that has uh, the the two boys on the boat and where they pick up Killian Murphy and, or any right. of the other all of them are just as intriguing so you're never like oh let's get back to the other one I don't want to you're right. always right. invested in whatever he's right. showing you that's he's a brilliant filmmaker like that yeah he is yeah and um so like I said the, most of those characters are fake and and Tom Hardy's is the only one that's kind of like because he's the single guy mm -hmm. in a place. Right. Uh there is there was a, a pilot that ha his story is based on and he he was uh, he wasn't English he was from New Zealand but he was a Spitfire pilot. Right. And uh his name was uh Alan Christopher Deer and they just called him Al for short but right. so he his story is somewhat like that i don't right. he did have to crash land on the beach right. and all that again it's doing that thing that we were talking about in previous things where it's taking elements of truth right. and, and well but i mean but i guess my point in bringing that up is that one is somewhat based on a guy because it's one guy involved in that storyline right. whereas and we're following individuals in the other one those guys are pretty much just made up characters within the the, the mass they represent the mass of the soldiers right Exactly. You know, on the list that I, when I was doing research for, it always was showing up on, uh, on the higher on the list of things very accurate. Yeah, because that was like literally when, my, the, when I researched this and found out about this New Zealand pilot, right. the rest of the article was asking the question was did this really happen did that really happen did you know and goes down and everyone was yes 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 yes, 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 <laughs> yes so it was all it was very historically accurate as far as right it just yeah it, the, the characters are made up and but. the other thing that i just have to give props to is you get someone like tom hardy in there who has the charisma of amazing he just did a film with oh, christopher yeah. nolan where he had to wear a mask over his face and then the in whole this time one, the, half the movie he's got the <laughs> yeah he's a hunky boy too <laughs> right, so yeah. like and 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 tom Tom, that's what I love about Tom is is the fact that you know he knows he's good looking. Right. He's not, you know what I mean. And he's like, I don't, I don't give a fuck if if the story calls for my face to be covered. Right. 
So what? My face is covered. If I have to wear CGI black venom goo. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Quentin Tarantino has famously been on all over the internet. Oh, yeah. You know, over the last couple of years talking about how that's one of his top five favorite movies of all time. I, I was lucky enough to get to see it in 70 millimeter, and I was it was such a gorgeous movie. I mean, it's gorgeous to look at, but then when you're yeah. putting all the elements that he puts in the film, it's just, it's so great. And it's one of those films that, you know, if, if you were the type of person which i feel that there's a big majority of people in there mm-hmm. that go to see a movie and just go well this is how i'm going to view that historical event right, and right this one would be probably the closest you would get to how right. things kind of went down but in a very entertainment hollywood yeah. way but without adding a ton of sheen to it. right yeah we'll get to one of those world war ii movies a little bit later <laughs> right right <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you first come out here to the bush. You was green as that. <laughs> you ever get caught in a mistake that you just can't get out of, okay? We got anything, man. Just keep your pecker hard and your powder dry, and the world will turn. So then we get uh, a director that comes in, Oliver Stone. He comes in in the late 70s as a writer, starts to get more, more momentum, and then ends up putting out a, a, something that he actually went through, which was Platoon. And so that film is, right. is said to be based on events that happened to him. Again, we're coming from perspective of a guy saying, this happened to me. And I'm not saying it's inaccurate. Yeah. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, uh, that we're taking a person's point of view of a story they experienced in that we should say that he is a vietnam war veteran right and it fucked him up and so this this was basically movie making ended up after he got out of the war Mm -hmm. filmmaking became his therapy right and storytelling and all of these things so uh he's also a gentleman that he's very open about he engages in opiates and Mm -hmm. and and many drugs of the like to uh relax and (laughs) and not relax and and so (laughs) right all of these things and and so all of this i think has a major influence on his very kinetic style of of storytelling yeah and how his beliefs even and, and how his beliefs sculpt his storytelling into every one of the movies that he because he's a very more often than not he's doing a film that has something to do with history right and in the filmography that we'll talk about like i said he did platoon and that was the story of that uh moving on to one of the more popular ones that he did before he got to jfk which we'll get to in a minute he did the doors right That was one that apparently, even by everyone that surrounded the situations that it's dramatizing in the film, yeah. they say it was extremely, taking extreme liberties. Right. I think a lot of the band members of The, the Doors, right. especially the guy, I can't remember his real name, I apologize, but the guy that Kyle McLaughlin plays, you know, the keyboardist. Oh, yes. Um, that guy's a very spoken, very outspoken member right. of the band who's still alive today, and he... I think he was pretty unhappy with the film, to be honest, yeah. Right. There are many people that met with Oliver Stone, and he did like 12 hours or two-day interviews and stuff like that with these people Mm. to get all of these stories. And I think what they got upset with was that when they came out and they saw the movie, they thought, man, he went wild with this. Mm. And I think, in my opinion, again, I don't think that Oliver Stone was doing it to capture 
the essence of the truth. I think he was doing it and saying this guy was bigger than life. A lot of his life was fucked up on drugs <laughs> of all of this yeah. stuff. So right. I want to tell the story through these wild kind of mm -hmm. visual representations and really mm -hmm. take liberties with it and i think he even said i think in an interview that he was he wanted the movie not to be a fact-based biography but more of an impressionistic painting of right. what uh his life would have been and stuff like right. that. right so yeah yeah and you know we we were talking about val kilmer when we and also in our <laughs> batman uh, uh volumes right. one and two and uh or right. the doors came up in that and, and yeah he did embody yeah jim morrison in a way that was oh, kind of creepy you know yeah. <laughs> it was one of those things that i don't i wouldn't put oliver stone in the in the category we've put kubrick and edgars and and fincher as being accurate right no like detail oriented but i think that he he could see I, I cast this guy. He looks so much like him. He sings the own, his own songs, and they, they don't use recordings of right. of Jim Morrison. And he sounds like him. Yeah. He gets the everything like him. If I can make this as real as possible, I can do whatever I want with the rest of the tapestry. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and we also mentioned and played clips from the Val documentary, and and mm -hmm. they did talk about how annoyingly deep he got into that character and he's Val, talking yeah. about how yeah the yeah, Val Kilmer did and and how he uh, uh just changed you know like method in a very method mm -hmm. way and annoyed the shit out of his wife at the time <laughs> right because he wouldn't let it go and he and it obviously worked though right yeah you know I I still would hold it as one of his best performances yeah me too I, as I said and I show I'm not a huge fan of his but I did definitely you can't help but take note of if you know anything about James Morrison if you've heard anything mm -hmm. him do interviews any of that stuff you, you you can definitely see like wow he nailed that man. right people are strange when you're a stranger So getting into uh, JFK then, right? you know, he poses a specific version of what he thinks happened, you know? For sure. And uh, I think I, I, if it was on, it might have been on Joe Rogan last year or whatever. He was on recently. I think it was on a podcast. Oliver Stone? Yeah. And he kind of does think this story, th this is the story. JFK to me, and I like that movie a lot. Yeah, it's fun. But JFK to me is a guy with a belief system that is very wide in conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's his platform to get out there and give his version of, because the Warren report came out and the Warren, you can't deny if you've read even half of the, and I don't know anyone who's read through all of those things. Stone says he's read through all of them, and I honestly don't. Doubt, I don't doubt it. Yeah, yeah, I don't doubt it. Yeah, and, and, and I think this is his and this is my Warren report to show. Right. I, I look at it definitely as Stone being a lawyer in front of a jury, which is the audience of the movie, and basically saying, "I'm not trying to convince you this is what's real. Yeah. I'm trying to raise reasonable doubt." Exactly. Yes. Right. No. I think that's that's a very good way to put it. Denison wrote, "Authority forgets a dying king." This was never more true than for John F. Kennedy, whose murder was probably one of the most terrible moments in the history of our country. Do not forget your dying king. And, and, and so, you know, you look at the, the things in it where, you know, Oswald 
he's be- he's definitely playing him off as a patsy in the movie, and that's mm-hmm. his his definite versions and stuff. And there's all kinds of things that go either way and stuff. There's eyewitnesses that allegedly said that they saw Oswald deliberately shoot mm-hmm. like out of the window and all of that stuff. But that person that is on. Uh, that is documented. This is again alleged. I don't know if this is for you. I haven't read the Warren report, but apparently that person would not ID Oswald in a lineup because mm-hmm. of they were afraid there was a higher conspiracy mm-hmm. to it because they thought everything was just a little too fishy kind of thing. And then you know it spins off into the, like the Bay of Pigs, the CIA, and the mafia, yeah. and the president. Right. And everyone had a hand in it and all that stuff. And that's just him. Like I said, I think that's just him throwing everything at the wall and seeing whatever sticks in the viewer's mind. Well, too, and I think you know because of the age he might have been when that happened in right. 1963. I think it, it it was his 9/11, right? I mean that was yeah. The, and I, you know I was 29 year old, I think, in in, in 2001 when that happened okay traumatized me for sure you know what i mean and it changed my complete outlook on the world where i had no political i feel the whole world the whole all i should say all of america didn't give a shit about politics you know until after that point right so that's how that's the trauma of that and i feel like for oliver stone back in 1963 that that was the thing that shook his world and made him suddenly doubt the yeah. uh, stability of the United States, the country right. he grew up in and loved, right? And I think that all of that, like you said, you, that affects you. You're, you're irreverably changed mm-hmm. when something like that happens and rocks your world like that. And that was something that rocked all of the United States. Everyone was just like, how safe is everything? Yeah, <laughs> you e- know? Even, even the people, there was yeah, obviously... You know, because of his political leanings, there was a lot of people that didn't like him. Right. And a lot of the, his opponents were like, ah, that he, well, he didn't deserve that, you know. Right. And some, and some did. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's some theories that say that, you know, Lyndon Johnson was behind it because he wanted to be president. Oh, yeah. yeah. He even introduces that theory in the movie and everything. Right. And so, and so, you know, there are all of these things that I think he's, he's representing in the film. And I don't think his agenda is to believe this one scenario i think his agenda for the film was basically if i can take one person watching this movie who believed oswald did it alone and make them go maybe he didn't i think that's i think he's like i did it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that's all i wanted to do because i I definitely think he's a a man who likes to rock the boat a little and 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 if you look at all of his you know the next film he or not the next film but a film that he does not too long after that is the story of nixon right and that even plays in the conspiracy stuff and everything oh yeah taking great liberties with this and that and then he's even rocking the boat when he gets to natural born killers and he's yeah talking about how society looks at and holds these killers up and look i mean look at that was back in 93 or 4 when when uh, Natural Born Killers came out. Look at where we are now and how true crime is like uh, yeah. good, a gajillion dollar in business. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, what I was going to say, though, going back to JFK, is uh, that the cast of that movie is vast and enormously talented. It's the phone book <laughs> of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. We got, you know, uh, Oswald is paid by one of our favorite oh, actors of all times, right? Gary Oldman. Yeah. He, yep. And he's so good and god damn it he is whoever is in yeah. you know what i mean yeah but i you know it's it goes on forever it, yeah, Cobb, got, kevin costner's great in the movie he's fantastic yeah. sissy spacek and walter rathow and jack Newman yeah. and ed asner and all of yeah. these people you know kevin bacon and john candy and joe pesci yeah tommy lee jones and tommy lee jones yeah and this was before tommy lee was tommy lee mm-hmm. and it's a it, it is a fun you know kind of conspiracy movie to yeah. watch and you know you it, i think for me it even it definitely shook me 
Yeah. No. I didn't ever want to buy into, you know, yeah. before that, 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 yeah. that it was, it's just fucking Oswald. Everybody leave it alone. Right. And then you watch that and you're like, oh, geez. Wow. Reasonable yep. doubt. You're right. You got yep. me. Yep. <laughs> you know? I mean, I was 13 when that movie mm-hmm. came out. And I remember seeing it and it made me look at how not to just take everything at face value, but right. question things. Not even question, if I yeah, believed right. everything that was right. going on in the movie, but start to question, to like, how do I know what's written in this history book is really how things went uh, down right. kind of thing, right. you know what I mean? And yeah. that's why the earth is flat. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> and that's... Oh, man. Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents them from asking the most important question why why was kennedy killed who benefited who has the power to cover it up this film i think one of the main things that really gets people in even if the people who are younger at the time who really didn't really know or care about presidents before that time Mm -hmm. or wasn't Mm -hmm. interested in it they would get maybe drawn into seeing the movie because this actor or that actor is in it. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to check that out just to see that actor. Yeah, Kevin Costner was at the top of his game at that point. Yeah. Right. And to see him, you know, playing this part and everything, I, I think that it affected the people that, that saw it. And, mm-hmm. and also how he ramps up everything for you. The way he mm-hmm. films that movie is super in your face and kinetic and flash cuts and, and really gives you perspectives of this person doing that black and white grainy footage and then he mixes it with it. And, you know, that's the first time I had ever saw the footage of, of John F. Kennedy the mm-hmm. actual assassination and, the, oh, and yeah. he shows the autopsy picture and all of that stuff yeah, right, really right. affects you. I mean he's, he's trying to grab you by the shoulders and shake you a little bit. Right. Wake up. Yeah. And so to see how that was uh, represented and then, you know, and then you got John Williams coming in and doing that score. And mm-hmm. putting that behind them talking about these conspiracy theories, it's this score mm-hmm. that's kind of ticking away. It's kind of hard to not just be like, oh, my God, you know, even Donald right. Sutherland's government, Mr. X, that he gets a lot of information from, you know, where he's really dropping a lot of like out there conspiracy theories on you. <laughs> Yeah. You can't help in the moment of watching the movie kind of just like, is this, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is now we live every day now right. in America, you know, 30, you know, 25, 30 years later. This is one of those movies I feel that I've even talked to people who base their opinions on the stuff in this movie instead of even <laughs> looking into it. Yeah. They, they right. see this movie and they go, oh, well, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Oswald did not do it or whatever their belief or whatever yeah. conspiracy theory they grabbed onto in that movie. That's their belief system that they carried with them now. Right. Hey there, folks. We just wanted to let you know in case you wanted to reach out and have any questions for us or even wanted to answer some of the questions that we've posed to each other during the show, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at at TFTFP podcast. Yes. Sometimes you might want to use Twitter instead. Yes. And, it, and if that's the case, mm-hmm. you go to uh, the address there. It's a little different. It's podcast TFTFP. Hey, if you want to send us a shiny old email, you can do that at tfTFPpodcast at gmail.com. That is beyond the truth, my friend. Mm. And do us all a favor and like, subscribe, and review us because it helps us out. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we could go down a, a very deep, dark, oh, yeah. Alec Jonesy rabbit hole on conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, and and where we're with it today, and how much trouble it's causing in the world. But um, yep. The thing is, was you know, what we were kind of talking about when we brought this movie up to discuss in this episode was right. basically, well, you know, what do you, where do you even fit that into the context? You know, right. it's so highly debated. How can you do a historically accurate version of that movie? Yeah. You can't. I think the only way you can is how he did it. And it's to put a gazillion theories out there. That's kind of a fun one, but it's also a, a, a rabbit hole unto oh, itself. Yeah. yeah. Totally. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, kind of go back into historical dramas that basically stories taken from history that have been basically embellished, you know, whether they come from novels and stuff. And this is where we're going to talk about Vikings and Vikings Valhalla. There's a a few uh, period pieces that I really love, and and they've really kind of helped me get somewhat obsessed with the English monarchy and its history. Right. And uh, that's the Tudors on Showtime. Mm Mm-hmm. And then on Stars Network, there was the series of, of uh, shows right. called The White Princess, The White Queen, and The Spanish Princess, right? And those three shows are basically a novelization of what happened at the, late, the second half of the War of the Roses, essentially, and how it kind of came to its close. And the end of the Plantagenet dynasty into the Tudor dynasty. And, uh, right. uh, and, and of course, the Tudors also is playing into the same story, right? right. But just the Henry VIII part. Right. Because obviously, Henry VIII is the most famous king of England, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. he did a lot of crazy shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, he, he changed the face of England completely. Right. So on, on, on the, those shows, they definitely do follow the historical bullet points of what actually happened and the different battles and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. But, you know, like say on the Tudors, the Showtime series with uh, J- Jonathan Reese Myers, um, right. you know, they're telling the almost the early part of his kingdom to his death, basically, mm-hmm. when he's coronated. Um, you have to, you, you know, they're telling it over several seasons, but you right. still have to con- condense that. Yeah. And some characters are made up of mm-hmm. three different characters to make a point, and, and that's kind of where right. the fluidity comes from in, in the story, in, in, in historical accuracy and all that stuff. But well, especially like the like I think because in the show it's been a while, but I think in yeah. the show doesn't it show one sister and there's really like two sisters. Yeah, and that's the, what you're talking about them condensing a character. Yeah, you mean you mean Henry Henry's sisters? Right. Yeah. Hen- okay. Yeah. 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 yeah there's he, he had, Megan yeah. Megan Mary. Right. 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 So they condense that, and then they, they also are recognizing, I think it's Mary and Elizabeth as princesses, and they really weren't. And they do that for the sake of, sake of basically give it a little bit of pep in the story for the soapy mm-hmm. part. Because right. they, like one of them ends up going and marry, marrying, like I think, a Portuguese king. Yeah, and that never. And happened. yeah, they, right, right, right. That's 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 Mary. That's his sister Mary. Right. Yeah, the younger right. one. Right. No, she married the king of France. I think right. it was. 
uh, and he- the Henry Cable character had to go, and that did happen. Where and then they fall, they do fall in love against right. his will. That all that happened, but right? Yeah, but, right. But where they said she went, yeah, yeah, yeah correct. That, that's that thing where they're coming in. I you can see writers looking at the bullet points of history for the show yeah. and saying this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. These two things are interesting but not as interesting as if we could combine them together and if we change this little nuance that'll make it Mm -hmm. even better for this soapy part of to connect all these things and make it interesting so people will tune in and not just feel like we're reading a historical book to you (laughs) You right 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 make it a little juicy yeah and and say so like in uh, like the white princess and the white queen um they are taking a bit of folklore with those two characters the the because the they are a mother and daughter. They're, they're a couple of Elizabeths, you know in what I mean? The, the, yeah, in the show, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, even in real life, too. Okay. But uh, they were mother and daughter. But what what's exaggerated in there is the first Elizabeth, who was married to, uh, uh, I believe it's Edward IV, hmm. who was a Plantagenet guy. He's the one that takes the throne from uh, Henry VI, which is a Lancastrian, and, and he's a York guy and uh they, they basically follows him and his wife and how they you know and and his rise and as the king and because she is a bit of a forest lady mm. <laughs> you know she's a york woman of the forest people theorize that she had uh, witchy powers mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is believed back then it's right. not obviously it's not historical fact but this story works that shit into um right. what happened right so that, that's what I mean with, with the stories that are really coming from history. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows how much has been embellished along the way. But just hearing those, you don't have to add too much sheen to them to make them interesting. Unless you're right. going to add dragons and knights. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> right, and right, like they do in Game of Thrones. Right, right. <laughs> you know. No, that's what, that's what's crazy is when you do follow some of this stuff of the English history and the, and the monarchy, it, it is way crazier. You read this stuff and think... This is How, fake. This really, yeah, this is fake. This didn't happen. No, it right. fucking happened. Right. There was so much backstabbing, and it's fascinating history. Right. Yeah. That's why I've got, I've become obsessed with it. Yeah. Right. Then when you get into the Spanish princess, she right. is, she is Catherine of Aragon, right? And right. and she's the daughter of Queen Isabel and Ferdinand II of Spain. Right. And if we go back a little bit in time, that's the Queen Isabel of Spain is not only is she the one that bankrolled Christopher Columbus's uh, journey to the New World, well, to India, that ended up being the New World. Right. She also instigated the Spanish Inquisition to rid Spain of the Muslims and Jews and all that stuff because she was deeply, deeply Catholic, her and Ferdinand, and they were trying to um, reestablish the Catholic dominance and the, the Pope's dominance in Spain take it back from the Muslim the, the parts that were Muslim occupied so what's it's very f- interesting that you know after later on after all of the troubles uh, Catherine her daughter has having stillborn babies and all that stuff and right. only having one surviving child which is a, a girl Mary basically um, puts uh, Henry VIII into like, you know what? Fuck the Catholic Church. They won't let me divorce this bitch. Right. <laughs> so I'm not even going to be a part of this. Fuck the Pope. I don't give a shit. Right. 
I'm the new head of the church. It's church of it's it's the Church of England from now on. So fuck Catholicism. Right. Right. So right. everything you know, everything that her and her mother believed in, right, got uh, kind of uprooted in England, and and it's it's never gone back since. You know. Right. Right. I was reading stuff on this too, and it was talking about like the 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 things that are accurate to the stories. It was also mm-hmm. talking about how the writers definitely were embellishing, again, in a very soap opery way about how when Catherine landed in England and she was mm-hmm. to marry the older brother of Henry Arthur. Arthur, yeah. Yeah, well, they, were, they were like sending love letters and stuff like that. And they said mm-hmm. at the time that wouldn't have been true because she was 15, he was 10. Right, right. <laughs> that exactly. whole thing. But you have to do, you spice it up. What they were saying was is that Arthur was such a meek little turd muffin. Right. He didn't have any masculinity, and that Henry, or Hank as they called him at back then, was writing the letters for right, him right. and expressing his love, you know, and that's how they're, she and, and didn't know it. Right, yeah. and they're embellishing it to give characterization to one character over another to show meekness, you know, yeah. and, all, and all of that. And so and then they were also talking about how Queen Isabella is seen fighting in her own war alongside the soldiers. Mm-hmm. They said that would have never happened. They said yeah. she was a strong one, but they would not ever have allowed her to fight alongside the soldiers. She would have never been able to do that. And it said that the production staff and writing staff actually said that they made that up because it would be a great way to show off Isabella's reputation as a strong leader. Right, right. She influenced the entire world at that right. point because at that point, Spain was the premier uh, monarchy of the world. You know right. what I mean? No, all I'm saying is, is is that you've got writers looking at these things in history and saying, this would really stand out in the TV show, mm-hmm. and it would be a great moment. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah. so... Yeah, that's like right in the beginning, yeah. And that's, that's one of those things that, like, uh, my whole point of even bringing up this topic when I pitched it was that how people see these kind of shows or movies or something like that, take them into heart... And then sometimes you get around people who know history from other sources than movies mm-hmm. and TV shows. Right. And then they, they're like, that, no. <laughs> That's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And then, of course, they, they were saying, though, how, how well that they show about the, the uh, Spain's Inquisition in the show and mm-hmm. how well that's represented and how it does fit, form fits to what is in the text of how it happened back then. And mm-hmm. so that, that was something that they really complimented on. I don't think anything has been done better about the Inquisition than the history of the world. <laughs> right. The Inquisition. Let's begin. The Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. They don't spend a lot of time with Isabel and Ferdinand. It's mostly about Catherine in England trying to make her way. Right. Yeah. That's those things that I was talking about at the beginning before we got into any of what we were talking about is that I think... I would imagine it being very inviting and tempting for writers in whatever TV setting or streaming setting or movie setting to see all of these wonderful tales that are are about history and these times and stuff like that and cherry pick things from them. And then the glue to hold them between all of these things Mm -hmm. is all fictional to link them to. So you have elements of real history mixing in just like uh, it's not too far from what we were talking about that Kubrick did for Barry Lyndon. He's taking real things and he, you can even see essences of history passing by in the background Mm -hmm. of this fictional story. But that's where that blurry line starts to go Mm -hmm. all through these depictions of history through it. And even in the texts that we know all of these stories from, 
there's already blurry stuff in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can yeah. link factual things to some of these texts, but you can't link. It can't be. A, nothing's 100 percent. Even well, and and here's here's the point going on that about whether she consummated her her marriage to Arthur. Right. Years later, when Henry VIII is wanting to divorce her and marry uh, Anne Boleyn, mm. he uses that as his argument to the Pope to grant him divorce. Mm -hmm. He says, well, t technically we, our marriage was never legit because she, she lied. And the, and, and, and the reality is in that, that there's only, even, even at that point, the only person who knew the truth was Catherine. Right. And whether she was telling the truth or not, yeah. nobody will ever know. Cause who she knows, didn't, right. yeah, she's, right. you know, for the sake of her power and her, family and, right. and her reputation she's sticking to her story that I right. never had sex with Arthur which I think makes that story even meatier right I know because you don't if she keeps things to herself but there's implications from whoever out there believes these things it just makes this on, on Henry's part that's a pretty fucking good argument yeah no yeah. no exactly but that may that that takes a, a uh, not a simple story but it takes a story with some meat on it and makes it mm -hmm. meatier right <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, you know, what ends up happening is because of politics and because the Pope wants his power over England, mm. he doesn't care what Henry says and he denies he sticks with 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 Catherine. And right. that's that's basically what makes him say, you know what? Fuck you, Pope. <laughs> I don't want to be part of your church anymore. And right. And changes the architecture of right. England's history from there forward. Right. As basically a Protestant nation yep. those shows you know they're kind of they are a little soap opery and all that stuff but they're fucking fascinating they're really no, yeah, good sure. and i i it's funny as my wife was watching the first half of you know she was like halfway into the first one which is i can't remember if it's the princess or queen the white one and i was the teaser i'm like oh what are you watching your old lady king shows you know i would say that constantly and then i go into the bedroom where she's watching it at one point you know just getting ready to go to bed and then 10 minutes in I'm like so who, who who's this guy what's he doing <laughs> and what does he have to do with that and then then I'm like when's the next episode <laughs> you know what I mean and another thing that we've talked about in the past show that uh, that when we talked about White Earp yeah the thing that links what you're saying to me to you like you said you're really fascinated into this history and stuff and I get fascinated in, in increments on this kind of stuff too but what I think that you and I might share in this thing is when you're watching something like this, mm -hmm. I respond more to the stuff that ends up being the real, real stuff, stuff. Yes. Are thought to be real as opposed to when you see the soap opery stuff coming in. Re that's right, the stuff right. where I'm like, uh, this is starting to fall off. The yeah. No, that's exactly it. Right. Because here's, here's what I ended up starting to do. And it started like uh, in the first once I because she ended up starting the whole thing over so right. we could watch it together. And uh I start getting interested and in thinking to myself, okay, well, how, did this really happen? And then I start doing like, while I'm watching the show, I'll start do, I'll get on my phone yep. and start kind of like, in a way, historical fact checking, right. you know, did this really happen? What happened? I did, and then I started doing it with the tutors and right. I started doing it. And then we were, we were watching, we watched Vikings before that. And I right. was doing that all along with Vikings. Like, and, and, um, and that's the next one I wanted to get into is right. uh, the Vikings series on its history. And then Vikings Valhalla, which came out on Netflix. So right. They, they kind of carried on the thing from history. Um, not with the same writers, but with right. a lot of the same production crew. The Vikings shit is 
fucking fascinating. And and, mm-hmm. and it, it's what made me really want to go see The Northman right. because that culture is brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's something... I guess it, what's cool about it is it, it does step away from the Anglican shit that we're used to and that we've been brought up and raised like all this monarchy stuff I'm talking about and right. with Henry VIII and all that stuff this is this is something that's outside of that and it's mm-hmm. foreign in a way and they, they but they also had an influence on that the English history too and the French history and the, and uh, all that but um, right. so and and it's also from the time period too of like the 8th and 9th century you know the Ragnar Lothbrok sagas are those oral tradition stories that didn't get written down at least in the in the scandinavian perspective for centuries whereas they were written down from the english perspective of getting their ass kicked but or handed to them by by these uh, in viking invaders these norse invaders as they called them or, or norsemen mm-hmm. It kind of adds to the myth because of the fact that these dudes were scantily clad and carried axes instead of swords and were all very giant mm-hmm. <laughs> and fearless and, and, and it adds th- this mystique to these historical figures. And, and, and again, the thing with Ragnar Lothbrok uh, is... A character in Vikings. He's the lead character in Vikings. Right. And he's a huge character in Scandinavian history, but they don't 100%, they can't prove that he ever existed. It's one of those things where it's, the stories have gotten so big that he became mythic at a certain point, but it's, he probably, in my opinion, he most likely existed. I think there's, there's way too many accounts of him in England and in France uh, Mm. of raising hell. And, and then within the legends of the Scandinavians, he's, he's like almost at the level of a god you know what i mean right yeah that's what i was reading is is just what you're saying about ragnar and everything they said that that uh, as the seasons go on the thing that you see again like in a lot of these shows is they're taking history they're cherry picking historical events to have a through line for these characters to encounter history with yeah and so you'd have an event like in season one that takes place in like 17 or 780 and mm-hmm. then you have another thing in the season three that takes place in like 832 and then another right, thing that takes right. place. So they're jumping many, many years with no aging too much of the characters right. and stuff just to kind of keep a through line of of the characters in a storyline that you can follow and, and, and have fun with and still see parts of history. Yeah. Well, what we talked about off transmission was mm-hmm. the fact that they portray Rolo as Ragnar's brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rolo is definitely not fictional. He is a real person right. that lived. The problem is he lived about maybe 80 years after the fact. Right. So that's one of the things that they pulled stuff from, you know. And, and yeah. Rolo was the one who, you know, in the show, they talk about it. He gets bought out by the uh, King Charles of France, and he is given the land in France, and that becomes Normandy, named after the Normans. Right. You know all that stuff. You know later, Steven Spielberg makes the movie, right? right, right, right. <laughs> on the on the Battle of Normandy. So right. that's another one that's like you said they they're cherry picking certain things and all that right. uh, to kind of make a story because yeah, there's no way he, yeah. he would have to be either his. Well, they live such short lives. You know, they only live right. to be like. 35 45 years right. old you know so he would have had to have been his grandson at that right. point you know what i mean you know yeah and, that, and, that, and the things that i was looking up was basically just saying that and it's it's a way 
to give you an experience of this culture over mm-hmm. the changes that had happened and not have to constantly bring in new people to play new characters because you get invested in one character. They want you to keep you invested in all that stuff. And so, that that again, that's those things that when you're watching a TV show or a movie or something like that and they're compressing time to show mm-hmm. you a lot of stuff, all of the more interesting things instead of right. showing you mundane tasks and stuff. Well, and then, again, it's all saga and... Right. and accounts of the conquered as well right when it gets to vikings valhalla that's like also another it's in the early 11th century so like they are following uh Forkbeard and uh king canute and king canute is an interesting person in uh english history this is also the point too where um a lot of the Vikings had converted to Christianity. So even within the Vikings, there's a lot of civil warring going on because there's those who are sticking to the Nordic traditions and then those who are becoming Christians and think that they're calling their own brothers heathens at this point. Yeah, I mean, it basically, it's the death of a culture. Yeah. You know, as it gets homogenized into Christianity, but... Right. to World War II we were going to talk about, which is, um, <laughs> takes some liberties, as we say, as, uh, is, that's Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck and... No way. Yeah. Not this director. <laughs> yeah, he's a straight shooter, that guy. <laughs> I tell you, uh, attention to detail. Yeah. So, this is a movie that follows the bullet points of yeah. Pearl Harbor and, uh, <laughs> kind of fills it in with a bunch of, uh flim-flammy stuff. Out of all the ones we've talked about so far, it's a little more loosey-goosey in between those bullet points. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, right, right, right. You know, and uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, of Michael Bay at all. But Me neither. But I would say that it's not just him coming into this kind of film and doing this. This is what they were doing, what we were talking about back in the Duke days, <laughs> where you're taking a <laughs> yeah. real event and then giving bravado to some actors, letting them have their day in the sun and be this, you know, in this thing that takes place in history, and then giving you Hollywood movie stuff to do and say and, and have, you know, it's, it's all that stuff that Saving Private Ryan isn't, and Dunkirk. Right. That's what this is. This is trying to get teens in to be entertained by right. history. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and, and to kind of pull on the heartstrings of yeah. the, of your patriotism, and get Faith Hill in there to sing a song and sell an album, and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, this is commercialization of history. Yeah, of history, exactly. As, as that's a good as, way to put it. Right, as as it was sold in the fifties and forties, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even part of the sixties. There's a few people. Obviously, there's some people in there that can't. That have to be real figures, yeah, like right. FDR and uh, Doolittle and all that stuff. Right. That thing that I said at the beginning, if you're going to tell the truth or the legend, go with the legend. So you have FDR standing up out of his wheelchair sure, to, yeah. to prove that impossible, nothing is impossible and all of this. <laughs> That's so corny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't have to spend too much time on Pearl Harbor. No, no, no. I don't. It's I'm not just... really worth it. Right. Versus like some of those ones that are super accurate, 
Band of Brothers, like we mentioned, and the Pacific, yep. which are like a sister show, one doing the uh, the European yep. front, one doing the the Pacific front. and right. um, Both really done done for TV and really, really well done. Really, really good, well done. riveting stuff. Yeah. You know, again, they're taking elements of, of, of a little bit of fiction, and, but putting them in situations that of all this stuff that really happened and and more of a teaching you stuff that happened that you may not know about you you know everyone knows sections of of just in normandy but not anywhere else during the war Mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff and so this it's really cool to watch these shows and kind of see how it takes you down that rabbit hole of other things that happened that you might not have known that happened in world war ii right and and specifically with band of brothers that was the very first paratrooper group the 101st division Mm -hmm that didn't really exist before that and uh, mm-hmm. all of the people in that are they have real names they're real people for the most part mm-hmm. and even the small characters th- right. uh, are taken from and uh, and verified yep. through history right this is the zodiac speaking uh we'll talk about going back to our buddy david fincher <laughs> what do you know how does that keep happening citastel what do you keep getting up for we're gonna bring you up again <laughs> uh, zodiac is one where um, right because of his attention to detail hmm. he wants to tell the story the best way he thinks it's represented historically and um from the perspective of i believe jake Gyllenhaal's character right right so yeah the book that that kid wrote yeah. right right he, mm-hmm. so he's playing a real guy yeah in the film and it's uh, Robert Graysmith. It's one of those ones where every the pencils in the cup holder right. are like from. <laughs> Doesn't matter the, if you see them and they're tiny, titty bitties on the screen. Yeah, they're, they're from that time period and a book that would have been written in uh, 1976 right. is on the shelf. He's like, get that book out of here, yep. you know. I think one of the most fascinating things on the making of that thing that really just, for me, clued me into how, what a maniac this Was is. how good the looking the, the Volkswagen Rabbit that Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> drove around in? That wasn't me that burst out on that particular element of the film. <laughs> I freaked out. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal drives this orange rabbit. <laughs> That is in like mint condition, like a 1978 rabbit, you know, and I'm like, who the fuck restores a Volkswagen? Well, now that doesn't seem too, but back then when the movie came out, I was like, who the fuck restores a Volkswagen rabbit to perfection like that? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't get over how perfect it was. Right, right. Because those things rust like crazy. There's an element though, and if you watch the, the making of it, there's a couple that was real victims of the Zodiac where they were laying on this embankment to the water mm-hmm. and then Zodiac comes in, ties them up and then stabs them. And uh, the woman of the two dies, the male survives. Well, they get that guy to come yeah. back for the film as kind of like to tell them, you know, what have his side of the story because mm-hmm. Venture wanted to shoot it if he could in that area, which the landscape had changed a lot since. A lot, you know, yeah. You know, well, you know, because they make this thing in 2006, that stuff happens in like '69. Mm-hmm. So they're standing on the area where it happened. So uh, Captain Arlo of Napa PD, who had gone to the original crime scene, takes us to the spot. Everybody's looking at us. Everybody but David Fincher. And David looks up and he listens to the traffic. And he gets down and he's feeling the dirt and the gravel. And I'm thinking, what the heck is this? And then suddenly he just gets up and he walks around to another inlet. 
He's listening to traffic and he has Jamie yell, make some noise so I can see how the sound carries. He's, like, he's feeling the ground and he's studying all this stuff and what he can see passing of the traffic up above on the bluff. And he comes back and he says to Ken Narlo, who's the original officer on this case, I think the murder site's over there. And Narlo goes, my God, you're right. I took you to the wrong spot. And that just is like one of those things. It's just like, this guy is on another level. <laughs> yeah, he is, he is, yeah. So yeah, the, the movie is taking everything it can from this book that Robert Graysmith wrote. He had mm -hmm. Robert Graysmith in the movie. This has a pre-Iron Man, uh, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. in it, playing, who's brilliant in the film. He's really great, yeah. a wonderful cast. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo. And, Mark uh, Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards. and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, all of these people are just fantastic. He's taking all of these elements that happen from the book's point of view, and he's really trying to, when he presents it in the film, as open-ended as the evidence is. He's not showing you the face of the killer in mm -hmm. each one. And in fact, he's getting someone completely different to play the killer in each thing. When you just see his outline or silhouette, yeah. or something right. like that, to intentionally make you go, well, that wasn't the same guy and that looked like the one from the beginning. So it's not the same person. He's doing that because he's not trying to be definitive and this is the guy. Even when you see that ending that he gives you, he's giving you that ending because that's what Graysmith believes, not what right. I believe you should right. believe. Right. Right. And right. that's what I think is, is really brilliant. Now, you know, of course, they didn't have the genetic testing like we have these days back right, then. Right. So since then, a lot of these conclusions have, have come to be known as not accurate. Right. This is one of those cases because of the mystery surrounding it and how much credit this person who wrote in saying he was the Zodiac took credit mm -hmm. for all of these things that was debunked later as there's no way he could have done this or this or that. Because it holds so much mystery, something about this case comes up it seems like every three years something comes yeah. up about it to re-energize yeah. re the investigation in it or the you know people's interest in it and so it's just one of those things that uh, you know if you're watching a movie you don't know anything about the zodiac i showed this movie to my wife and she did not know a whole lot about the zodiac mm -hmm. and it was one of those things where she was said that at the end she's just like so who who did it? Is it that guy or is it not that guy? Are we supposed to think it's that? And I'm like, exactly, who did it? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I know. But also, my boy John Carroll Lynch is in it, and he's just yeah. off the charts good in that movie. Oh, Cal. Yeah. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. So um, so these ones, like I said, were, were considered very accurate. The ones we're going to consider somewhere in the middle. Right. The first one, Apollo 13, one, is one that's strat It's very accurate. It's very accurate. The only reason I put it, I want to say that it's kind of a middle ground is because the things that kind of got into the zeitgeist from this movie right. are actually the dramatizations. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And, yeah, and, and the animosity but about the Kevin Beckham character right. replacing uh, the Gary Sinise character, that's a bit manufactured right. for right. drama's sake, mm -hmm. you know? And, and um, then there's a lot of stuff that, that's, you know, between the families that they show and the stuff that's stylized a little more. They show something about the mother of Jim Lovell and how she reacts mm -hmm. to some of the news and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, they show how the wife loses the wedding ring, which is actually accurate. Yeah. That, that seems manufactured, but it was, she did believe in omens and that was something that actually really did happen by what they say. 
by what they say. Yeah. Again, yeah. but what I love about the movie though is that the things that are hyper accurate about the movie is he yeah. brings people who are working at NASA at that time in 1970 with the Apollo 13 you know right. thing that happened and he's also has people of the time he made this film all working together to tell him he's like if I can make all of this stuff as real as possible right right you know that's what I want to do and the look of it too the control room and all that right. stuff yeah it looked exactly like the place yeah right hey we've got a problem here uh, this is Houston uh, say again please Houston, we have a problem. Failure's not an option is exactly what that guy said, and it's even recorded that he, him right. saying that, and that's, right. that's pretty right. awesome. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. And to get yeah. a guy, you know, like Ed Harris to say yeah. that. Yeah, he nailed like, that role. Yeah, he did. So another similar one that where uh, some liberties have been taken is uh, <laughs> the recent one, Ford versus Ferrari. It's a very Tim movie right here. Yeah, it's a big movie. You know, cause I fucking shit my pants when this movie <laughs> came out because uh, I've known this story. I was kind of born and raised a Ford guy. You know, I've owned several Mustangs, and uh, the GT40 is one of my favorite cars of all time. <laughs> And uh, the story is pretty fascinating, you know. Right, yeah, um, oh, for sure. The problem is, <laughs> here's the problem. Yes, Ken Miles was difficult and uh, a bit of an eccentric, and he was a mad genius. And who is playing him in the movie? Christian Bale okay. plays yeah. him in the movie and, and does a great job. That's what seems to be the problem. Well, the Mars problem is that him. Bill here is but an arsehole. No, he doesn't mean that. No, yes, he does. No, yes, he really does. Yes, yes, no, he He's really does think that He's Bill is an arsehole. I'm just doing my job. So uh, what they don't tell you is that the GT40s raced in Le Mans, in 1964 and 1965. They do say 1965, but at that point, Shelby's involved and Ken Miles was left behind because BB hates him. None of that happened. None right. of that happened. What happened was is uh, he he helped develop the very original GT40 over in England and all that stuff, and um, all of those cars broke down. The, uh -huh. the GT40 marked up, none of them finished the race. And then in 1965, he was also driving for Ford, uh, Ken Miles was, right. and all of those cars broke down again. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, Carroll Shelby was there in the one class down with his Cobra Daytona, mm. and they won. Mm. And I think that's what caught the, they won their, their class. There was three classes that would run of, of cars at the Le Mans back in those times. So having him having won that and-, and uh, Shelby. Yeah, Shelby, and, and he had started his career with, he you know, buying engines for his Cobras from Ford and all that stuff, and uh, right. they basically said, all right, we'll take, bring him on, and then that's when Shelby and Ken Miles worked together okay. to develop the Mark II, which has the big block in it, and that's the one that wins in 66. Just real quick, Shelby in the movie is played by? Matt Damon. Right, and so yeah. the what they show in the movie of why they start working together, why Shelby can't race, is any of that true? About his heart? Right. Yes, that's 100% true. Okay. Yeah, he had to take uh, nitroglycerin pills like during the race and all that stuff to keep heart attacks and all that shit. That's totally true. And he famously had a uh, heart transplant, I believe, in the early 80s. And 
way outlived his life expectations because wow. he only he died in like I think 2012. That's crazy. Maybe 2013, something like that. And um, a lot of his uh, uh, he he gave to the Heart Foundation for charities quite a bit, you know, mm. for most of his life because of that, you know, that right. it, you know, he was pretty generous with his, some of his uh, money over the years. But um, the whole thing about Leo Beebe hating Ken Miles and not wanting him, that's all fabricated. Okay. None of that's true. <laughs> yeah. Just to give... Just to give dramatic, yeah. Tension. Right, right. The rest of it's... I was surprised at how good it was. I, you know, when it comes to car movies and stuff like that, it's it's pretty, especially historical stuff, it's... A lot of people take a lot of liberties, and right. the rest of that stuff is is very accurate. I will say, as a non-car guy mm -hmm. going to see it, I was fascinated by the movie, mm -hmm. and I don't think I've ever felt such a visceral reaction to the race when they show you in the cockpit mm -hmm. how fast things are going and yeah. things. Pe oh man, I remember leaning back in my seat. I I felt such a reaction. Yeah. And it's crazy to think, too, that, you know, those GT40s could go 200 miles an hour in 1966 on bias ply tires, you know, with mm. crap brakes. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the race car drivers of that era are a different breed because they did die a lot, like what happens to Ken Miles, which is true. He was what they called the the J model which was eventually became the GT40 Mark IV they were, he was testing an experimental version of that and it, and it got out of control and it you know caught on fire and he burned to death but so that part's accurate that's all true that's all accurate right. yeah the only other thing i say that's pretty phony baloney is is when uh, Shelby Carol Shelby Matt Damon takes uh, Henry <laughs> Ford the second right. uh, the deuce out in a test drive that didn't that didn't happen. right 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 yeah It's funny. It's a fun uh, yeah. moment in the. In the I remember yeah. seeing it with the audience and and having a reaction the same as them. That's always cool when everyone is unison in laughter. Yeah, and yeah. That was that was a fun. That was a fun little piece. Was the stuff in it between Ken and Shelby? Yeah. I mean, the fight's probably bullshit. Uh, uh, you know, when they're fighting over it. But yes, they were really good friends. Okay. Yes. They genuinely were really good friends. Okay. They, they had grown to really like each other. And I think he did race some of his Cobras earlier on in his career, you know. Right. And all the stuff that they show about them going to Ferrari and Ferrari kind of laughing them out. Yeah. 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 They, they, they kind of pose it as if he was bluffing the whole time to get Fiat to uh, right. pay a bigger bill. And there's probably truth to that because Fiat has owned a major stake in Ferrari ever since. Oh, okay. So there's a company out of South Africa called Superformance. It's basically super and performance as one word, Superformance. Mm -hmm. They make some of the best historical recreations of GT40s, Cobra Daytonas, and Cobras in the world. And it, uh, a lot of the cars you see in that movie are those. They're from Superformance. Oh, wow. What about another racing movie? Yeah, okay, the next one was uh, is Rush, right? And that's mm -hmm. uh, that's going back to Formula One, right? Right. Um, another Ron Howard movie, like the uh, Apollo 13, right? Yep. I heard you were spending more and more time in one of these 
Do you fly? <laughs> no. I don't think they'd insure me. You should try. It's good for discipline. You have to stay within the rules, stick to regulations, suppress the ego. It helps with the racing. <laughs> there I was thinking you were about to wax lyrical about the romance of flight. No, it's all bullshit. <laughs> So again, an another one that was a pretty fascinating year of Grand Prix. Right. So that was that year that Nicky Lauda and James Hunt were going uh, back and forth like motherfuckers. And um, so Nicky Lauda in real life was uh, talked to, <laughs> you know, a a about the movie and the his life experience with the whole thing. Right. He passed away two years ago. Right. He's a legend. That guy's a fucking legend. And mm. um, the movie kind of amps up a bit of the unlikability of him because mm. in reality if you see him he's he's very he is very german mm. or even though he's austrian he's very he's very germanic i should say right and uh you know has that very it's going to be my way or the highway kind of thing and he's going to get what he wants right. and he's but he was also extremely intelligent right but i don't think he was hated as much as they right. make him out to be and his relationship with james was a little was was cordial they were friends okay but they were competitive friends you know what i mean right you know so like at the end when they talk about they show that scene where he's like take you know take it easy guy and be safe and all that they, that's real they, he right. really cared for him he loved him and they were very close despite that you know and 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 the, and the thing about the racing in that time period especially in grand prix uh it was extremely dangerous mm. Lots of guys were dying all the time, mm. and the, they didn't give the team owners and the car builders and all that stuff. They really they saw the drivers as assets and ways uh, as 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 a piece of machinery that made their machinery win the race. Okay. So there was no safety given until the early '70s when when uh, Jackie Stewart starts petitioning stuff, and okay. what happens is Bernie Ecclestone gets starts getting involved in the and all that and it's just barely starting to change during this time period when James Hunt and um, Nicky Lauda are, are racing and then then Nicky has his accident where he catches on fire at Nuremberg and right. um, that starts to put the works into like well okay okay we yeah. really need to start thinking about these people as human beings <laughs> call, call to action call to action yeah right, right. so how, how would you say the movie fares as far as as racing it looked really good yeah it definitely took care and it wasn't sloppy it wasn't like that stallone one where they're <laughs> driven <laughs> right right they, they yeah they definitely took care and because you know like i said nikki was involved with uh, right. at least helping to tell the story and what nikki says is yes they exaggerated it for drama reasons and he said i am at peace with it the movie is what it is and i i like it for what it is you right. know it's a representation that he's happy with yes right I'm not a sports guy on any level. If I watch anything, it's fighting. Yeah, right. But I'm not a sports guy at all. But mm -hmm. sports movies, yeah, right. I will, I will go see in a heartbeat. And I did a lot. And so Rush is one of those ones that I wanted to see, just because I was like, it looks good. It's got that competition spirit. I want to see it. Mm -hmm. And it was, mm -hmm. I had a really good time with it. Again, you mentioning some of the more lavish things that they put in the movie is probably some of the things that I remember like feeling eh, okay we're getting into the soapy parts yeah of the, of the the, here's what seems like it wouldn't be true but is true is right. the way he was demanding they suck the liquid out of his lungs 
like I don't care oh, about right. the pain. Right. Yeah, he was really doing that kind of Damn. stuff. Cause, and then and, and the fact that he got back into the car and he was barely healed at all. He could right. barely walk. Right. But you could tell it affected him because he quit the race after a little bit. Right. You know, he said, this is too dangerous. Someone's going to get hurt. But like right. I said, the, the, <laughs> the race drivers of that era were a different breed. They went into every race not thinking about it. Right. My friends are going to die. I could die. Whatever. Who gives a shit? Let's go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the in the seventies it was like, and the sixties yeah. it was like, nope, these guys, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> get right. out there and give me some money. <laughs> right, right. Let's lean a little bit into that when uh, movies are basically calling themselves historical, and they're they're not really. Right. You know what I mean? They're just kind of like telling the story to tell the story. This is one of those things of where Hollywood comes in with their slant on certain words, like based on true events. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so we'll go way back to Oliver Stone real quick. We're going to talk about a big flop that he had called Alexander, where Colin Farrell plays Alexander the Great. Right. You want the world to say you're my successor? Is that what she wants? Oh, don't look so hurt all the time, Alexander. Be a man. You count yourself lucky you're here at all today. After your public display. So one of the big issues is, is we put Alexander the Great up on the pedestal as this Greek leader, and he, he was not a Greek leader. <laughs> right. And that, mo that movie pushes that idea forward. Right. He was a Macedonian leader, and Macedonia had recently conquered Greece right. a few years before Alexander was even born. So it was a property of Macedonia, Greece was. And then he grows up to be the king of Macedonia. Right. So there's that. And then there's a big thing where they're, they're making a really big deal out of his homosexuality in that. Right. And the problem with that is... It's not that he wasn't or didn't have... It, 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 the problem is is they're looking at that with a very modern Judeo-Christian perspective of right. homosexuality's bad kind of thing. Right. Whereas this is kind of like what we're talking about with the Northmen and viewing where Eggers goes, makes it a point to view the world how those people... The movie right. is through the lens of how those people would have seen the world back right. in that time period. Right. The pro the, and this is doing the opposite. It's viewing it through the lens of this Christian anti-homosexual perspective <laughs> right. where it's very well known that before the whole Jesus thing happened that the Romans and the Greeks and all that stuff, they, they praised beauty above gender. You know, they didn't... Right. There was no morality to who they had sex with. It was right. just, let's just have sex. Hey, you know, right. guy, girl, <laughs> horse, I don't care. Hole's a hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, there was no shame in it. You know, that's just how they live. This is how they live their life, you know. So they kind of make it out like it's a, like almost like controversial that he was right. having oh, sex totally. with men. And then it, and it wasn't. It was a part of it. Right time period you know right battles are left out and important things you know that movie apparently is is quite the mess historically very streamlined but uh, that fits into oliver stone's very loosey-goosey history right and he, right you're right what we were talking about earlier and and right. he um he does ha is have a lot of history to fit into a two-hour period so right you know right for sure 
Yeah. If he got to make it for Netflix with like eight parts to it, he maybe yeah, do right. something different with yeah, it. Yeah, or maybe not. Who knows? He might not. Right. Now, we do want to mention that uh, we know certain mafia films fit into this, like Casino and Goodfellas and Irishman, stuff like that. But we are going to be doing a mafia show eventually, so we decided to skip that part for this show. Yeah. And though my pocket may be empty. (laughs) All right, so the last thing I just want to bring up real quick, because these are personal ones to me. Um. And they're period pieces, you know, they're of a similar era. And um, that's Amadeus and Immortal Beloved, right? Mm. So I saw Amadeus, obviously, as a young kid. Mm. Whatever, as a young kid, you, you watch that movie and you think, well, this is the story of a real person, you mm. know? So it has to be real. This is an interesting story with the guy who's jealous and trying mm-hmm. to ruin his life. And he does have a short life, all that stuff. Right. You know, and and the other one, Immortal Beloved, which is this uh, story of Beethoven, uh, played by again our favorite guy Gary Oldman. When when this movie came out, I think in the early '90s, right, early '92-ish. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, I loved this movie. I used to watch it over and over again, and right. uh, I don't know how it holds up today, but um, right. I used to watch it a lot, and um, and again, t- kind of taking it as gospel, you know, mm-hmm. with, in in kind of a naive younger person's young adult right. kind of way just like oh this must have been the story of you know and right. everything lines up at the end that he loved that other woman and he, right. he was writing about her all this time right and, and uh find, come to find out you know later on as i become more interested in movies and, and all that stuff that they're both based on novelizations you know they're, mm. these are and i'm like oh oh so <laughs> that none of that shit really happened right <laughs> And, and that leads into the greater point of the topic, right. what we're talking about, as, as how these movies influence what we perceive as history, right? Mm-hmm. No, I remember being a kid and seeing Amadeus on, mm-hmm. you know, it played a million times on HBO or Showtime or whatever we had at the time, being a kid, mm-hmm. and just being bored to tears with it. Because oh. I did, you know, I was young. I, I mean, yeah. I'm talking like six, seven. Right. Anything with wigs, it's like, get out of my face. Yeah, like, what yeah. the hell is this? Right, right. And so, uh, you know, not seeing it again until probably, I don't know, seven years ago. Yeah. And just being like, holy shit, this movie is amazing. It's, it's amazing. Fantastic. It's, yeah. It's a work of art, that movie yeah. is. It won like a gazillion yeah. Oscars in its Rightly day. Rightly so. Yeah, Amadeus did. So yeah. it's such a, a, a rapturing story. Mm-hmm. That you're going along, and the same with Immortal Beloved, which I saw probably more in the '90s and fell in love with because I loved like Oldman at the time. I thought yes, I didn't watch anything right. with that guy. Yeah, and so you know, by that time in the '90s, already being I was one that was into film music, so that easily crosses the line to classical music, which I, you know I also am a fan of classical music. So having all of these people who wrote, wrote all of these robust themes and music from the time that you know the, when they wrote a beethoven and you know, yeah they're the two the Mozart, top right and so, so to have such a lavish story around it seems yeah. fitting it right. seems like something operatic you go and see of course you know so that's so fitting so 
after seeing Amadeus again and then going back and rewatching, you know, Immortal Beloved and seeing how beautiful these things are put together, yeah, it, you know, when you look at the, the history of stuff, this is one of those things that gets into that murky territory that who knows yeah. what was going on around those times. And you can, you know, piece together maybe stories that happen here and stories that happen there, but you have to kind of embellish. And so if you're going to do that, right? why not go big with it? Right. Yeah, and I think because of, you know, the reason those two stand out is because they're both these hyper geniuses, but mm -hmm. not like any under the other composers weren't at right. that time, like a Bach or a right. Tchaikovsky Chopin or whatever. Or, yeah, all yeah. those guys. But they have their, um, you know, what's his name? Dies young and mm -hmm. penniless, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mozart does. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he goes from, you know, writing operas for the emperor to barely surviving. <laughs> and and, and he's, he's very young. Yeah. And he's like this child prodigy genius. So there's this right. intrigue about it where he's, you know, writing operas at like four years old. And then with Beethoven, it's again, uh, he takes, he goes the next level. He, he, he comes into the piano and, and, and does things with it that didn't, you know, still seem impossible. Right. right? And he's fucking deaf, right. <laughs> you know, so, or at least he becomes deaf as he gets right. older, but he's still making and cr crazy music and also ends up alone and right. Penny, you know, I think he was, yeah, he was out in the streets and all that yeah. stuff. Right. Um, so it creates a tragic mythic character. Mythic. Right. Exactly. Right. right. And these stories kind of tie into well, what fill in the gaps for me, please? You know, right. why, you know, and 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 the, whoever wrote the novel Amadeus was is really onto something because it is a really interesting right. way to fill in those gaps. It's really yep. cool. And yep. F. Murray Abraham in that movie is so oh, fucking good. He's he's amazing. Oh, I don't know Jesus. how that guy didn't get a bigger career than he did. Right. But, and you know, even in well, he's in Moonlight now. As yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so good for him. He's finally made it to the MCU. <laughs> so yeah it, it creates this uh, this thing that we're talking about uh, who knows what's real and if it's good who cares yeah. but then you get into things where you can kind of more streamline figure out well this could have happened that did happen that did you know you can't do that with that time so it makes you wonder that when you get do get into areas where artists are taking stories and all of these things and they're adding so much embellishment you just like well what's the point of that when you've got a perfectly good story yeah and that's that's like you know if we go back to our episode about uh movies that uh, uh didn't do quite as well but we you and i both really love and that's yeah we like them why don't you um right we talk about how tombstone was this great big mm. fantastic hit Mm -hmm. But Wyatt Earp was the more honest depiction of right. the real man. And, and f I think, you know, that's why I tend to lean more towards, you know, like, say, Tora, Tora, Tora over Pearl Harbor kind of mm. thing, you know, right. because they, I, I want it to be I want to know what really happened. That's why right. when I'm watching this, the, the Spanish princess, I'm going through Wikipedia to say, did this right. person really do this at this time? Right. You know what I, I want to know the real thing because inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. There's a lot of people out there that don't give a fuck and would rather no live in the fantasy and say, I don't care about the reality of it. Right. I just want to no. be entertained where we are now in a world of endless 
supply of knowledge that you had can pull up in a whim mm-hmm. when we were, we were watching something that is supposedly based on true events or based mm-hmm. on a true story. Yeah. When I'm watching something and I respond to it and I know it's based on whatever true story, I want to find out, it, did what I just like really happen? Are you guys duping me? Are you right. guys duping me? Because yeah. I don't like being duped. Right. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's, the, and, that's exactly it. And if, I, if I'm being duped and I still liked it, then bravo to you. Yeah, right. If that really happened and I responded to it, I feel even better connected yeah, to because you know. right to what really happened yeah but yeah the, the whole point of what you just said is what why i even pitched the idea f- for the show which was you know how many people do we have out there even in this day where we we do have the information at our fingertips mm-hmm. how many people are okay to say that's my history now mm-hmm. i don't need to look you know i saw ford versus ferrari and that's what i think about that mm-hmm. that's real to me and that's history and i'm cool with that you know right I don't know if you saw The Last Duel, but The Last Duel kind of encompasses all of what we're talking about. Oh, with, yeah, Ridley Scott and Ben Affleck and, yeah, no, that's a brilliant film. Great film. Yeah, because it's a period piece, right? Mm -hmm. It's based on a real thing that happened. Yep. But within it, it's telling three versions of the same story, and it's telling you how history within itself can be thwarted by the whoever's telling the story at the time. So it's kind of like... That if you that movie's an encompassment of what we're we're talking about in this entire episode. Right, and I didn't even think about it. Good. Yeah, I didn't until just now. Wait, way to link it back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, being a film lover mm-hmm. and, and becoming a cinephile also helped me not want to take things at face value. Yeah, I, I'm this exactly the same way. Right. It made me want to say I like this, but what is out there that's real that either is akin to this or how accurate could they be and if they weren't accurate why weren't they accurate right what made them choose this over that right and so it made me more um it expanded my imagination i think a bit more to not just again take things at face value but Mm -hmm. go figure things out for yourself which is you know what's What's fun about doing the show that we do is that right. we, we, we don't just talk about one movie. We pick a topic and then kind of ramble on about it because you right. can peel back the layers a bit. Right. Yeah, I would have to say that it is historical movies that have made me a minor history buff. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? If it weren't for, because I, like I said, I don't enjoy reading. I have read books in the past. There are some, right, right. you know, but for the most part, it's a laborious task for me with my attention deficit disorder. <laughs> so I tend to just stick to the visual, but right. I, I then go into it knowing I can't always trust this mis- this material, you know, because I'm not, I'm watching someone's interpretation of it. And, and you know, and history is also some, you know, hi- history is an interpretation as well. Yeah. You know, you have to it's understand that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> History is written by the, the conquerors most right. of the time. But I always feel like the truth is always out there if you dig deep enough. That's right, Mulder. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but I think... Which is all historical fact, <laughs> the X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, it's interesting to me that in the time we live in where a lot of people who will... Uh, I'm not saying everyone does this, and I don't know... I can't point to any person who does this, but I can imagine that there's people out there that will watch movies like we were talking about. Well perfectly be okay with letting that be their history but when they meet someone mm-hmm. and they're not sure about them they'll go on facebook or they'll google them yeah. read, <laughs> right, make right. Sure, is this person trying to pull something over on me you right know, right of, right you know yeah and i want to be about that with everything yeah. right <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think there's a little bit of the 
well actually in me mm-hmm. that kind of wants to be right. able to say well that didn't happen like, right, like right. that you know there's <laughs> right. a little bit of a, you know i'm annoying that way i guess <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right right I, like kind of knowing what really happened versus what you know g- right. g- gives you a little bit of a chip on your shoulder right All right, then. I think we ought to make this episode history. There's only one way we can do that. Can you believe anything we ever said in this episode? (laughs) No. No. I would challenge everyone out there to look up everything we just said. (laughs) All right. So while you're listening to this show on your device, you can also use that space phone out there to (laughs) look up everything. Right, and see if we're telling the truth or not. Because maybe, yeah, we're probably wrong here and there because we're not perfect. If you find inaccuracies about what we say, keep it to yourself. Okay? Yeah, I don't want to hear it. I, we've already made our truth. We don't want the real truth. Because <laughs> we're hypocrites. Well, I'm going to hit the button and uh, ship this shit to bed, bro. All right, then. All right. Good night. Yeah. And as the Zodiac apparently said, good We are in our transmission.